Hello? Is anyone in here? I got your brochure in the mail about the interstellar stellar out-of-this-world sweepstakes, and I'm here to collect my signature moon pies and signed poster from second-second assistant director Gregory J. Pollard. Oh, good, you made it, Cobb, finally. Cooper, gosh dang it, I thought I was all done with you. Ah, come on, old buddy, old pal. You didn't think you'd get rid of me that easy, did you? You know something? I actually kinda did. Cooper, you're not exactly a hard guy to trick, you know. Says the guy who came here to collect six-year-old moon pies for a sweepstakes competition located entirely in an abandoned bunker off Highway 1280 in New Jersey. They're a collector's item, Cobb. You can't value the little things. You never could. All right, calm down, Cobb. Why, if I didn't know better, I might say something like you're scaring me again. But forget all that. I'm just glad you came. I really need your help this time, my old reliable, never-steered-wrong chum. <sighs> well... I ain't fighting rush hour traffic at this hour. What do you want anyway? Oh, I'm hatching up my latest scheme. Sounds about right. Where we're gonna go back in time. Heard this one before. To stop the coronavirus from ever happening, thus preventing movie theaters from being shut down forever, securing Christopher Nolan the chance to make his next movie, Dunkirk 2, Funkirk, to be seen on an all-consuming 70-foot mega screen with deafening loud surround sound that prevents you from properly hearing the clunky and garbled expository dialogue. I've got to say, Cooper, this is all starting to sound familiar. Why, I think the bit is getting a bit stale by now, don't you think? Well, I figured you might say something poignantly contrarian like that, which is why I invited a new member to our classic duo. Cobb, I'd like you to meet our new friend and partner in crime, a female accomplice. Greetings. A what now? This has to be what, the fifth or sixth time we've had a scheme that's at once familiar and original, right? I I'm not so good at numbers, as you know. Well, in true Nolan fashion, I figured it was time to introduce the sole woman to the group who provide both heavy exposition and moody looks of concern and passive judgment. Affirmative. As your sole female accomplice, I am here to provide important key bits of personal information that will inform our heteronormative story in emotional, gripping, and intensely human ways. Ah, I could have said it better myself. Cooper, this is ridiculous, and not to mention kind of derogatory and blatantly sexist. What even is your scheme this time? We already built a time machine. We traveled halfway around the world and kidnapped one of the most famous directors of our time. How could you possibly top all that? Well, I'm glad you asked. My plan was to- You knows what? Forget it. I don't even want to hear it, Cooper. I'm sick of this. I'm tired of our harebrained schemes and your emotional blackmailing and your toxic masculinity and your elaborate and comical and overly complicated efforts to make simple plans drawn out and overly dexterous. That's right. I have a new vocabulary because I'm a changed man, Cooper. I'm not the simple, agreeable cob you once knew. I'm no goon anymore. I'm a learned man. I've been watching a bunch of art house movies. I watched The Painter and the Thief. Admittedly, I thought it was like an Ocean's Eleven thing. But I was transfixed, Cooper. Transfixed. Now I'm looking at the cinema all differently. I'm studying the art of it. I know all about mise-en-scene. And you know something, Cooper? I already watched Tenet. <gasps> For reals this time. And it wasn't even at the IMAX. It was at the drive-in. And weeks after it came out, too. Like a normal person. And you know something? It was just okay. Personally, I think it was a weak effort from Mr. Nolan. You take that back, you worthless son of a b I won't, Cooper, because you know something? I'm proud to myself. I'm forming my own opinions. 
Sure, they mostly correlate with Rotten Tomatoes and general letterboxed consensus and top 10 lists and message boards on IMDb and even film Twitter. But still, I don't need to take any gruff from you. I'm going my own path, Coop, and I don't need you or your crummy schemes anymore. Goodbye. Now, wait a minute. Hold on, hold on. Don't run away from me, Cobb. Let me say something first. And if you don't like it, why, you don't ever have to see me again. Goon's honor. <sighs> Just make it quick, Cooper. I'm doing this as a courtesy. At least until the traffic dries down. <sighs> You're right, Cobb. I ain't so good. I've never been so good. Not now, not ever. But you know something? I like to think I'm a changed man, too. Sure, I'm still scheming. I'll always be scheming. That doesn't mean that I have solely my own interests at heart. What's that? Ah, uh, just a little something I wanted to give you. I swear, if this is another faulty doodlebug Blu-ray, I'm gonna chuck it right at the... <gasps> Do you like it? It's a box of moon pies? Just for me? Ah, uh, I always knew they were your favorites. <laughs> oh, God, Coop. I hate that I'm always so emotional. I... Are we being plugged by them now? Was this your scheme all along? Well, let's just say that this might not be the last moon pies you ever see in the days to come. But we'll only get accepted if we're a team. They want a brand deal. Brands are the craze these days, according to my 11-year-old nephew slash chief social media marketing director, Robin. Uh, I, I don't know, Coop. You know, this whole thing, it's a pretty big ask. If I may come in during the third act and say something profound and insightful, I believe the true mark of friendship lies not in the power of wisdom, but the courage to admit when you are wrong and forgive your friends for their flaws and imperfections. The mark of a loyal companion is sticking by your accomplice until the end, thick and thin, through trouble and good times. Maybe this is a moment of growth instead of the end for Cobb and Cooper. So what's the deals with her? Is she like a robot or something? That don't matter, Cobb. What matters is she's right. I need to learn to say I'm sorry and to forgive even when your friend watches Tenet behind your back like a dirty, rotten, cheap, lying, no good snake. I, I want to be the bigger man here. But Cooper, you big goon, I'm two feet taller than you. Uh, you know what I mean. I'm sorry too, Cooper. I guess we can always watch Tenet on Redbox. I promise not to spoil it for you. I like that. I like that a lot, actually. I think this is the end of the beginning of the end of a beautiful friendship. Do you want to tag along, female accomplice? As if, losers. I am getting my own spin-off series on HBO Max. I am the protagonist now. Welcome once again to Cinemaholics from the Bay Area. I am John Negroni, Editor-in-Chief of Cinemaholics. From Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he is a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend, and he also reviews films for Cinemaholics.com. It's Will Ashton. Hello. From Kansas City, she is the film editor for The Pitch, with bylines that go all over the internet. We're talking slash film, Crooked Marquee, RogerEber.com, it never ends. It's Abby Olchesi. Hello. 
You can find more episodes of Cinemaholics, including our full archive on cinemaholics.com. You'll also find written reviews, interviews, other features to sink your teeth into. You can write into the show anytime by sending us an email, cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. And if you're interested in supporting this podcast, there are three main ways. Yeah, three ways. Okay. First one is you can become one of our patrons. We love our patrons. Just head on over to patreon.com slash cinemaholics and check out the perks on there. You can also get your hands on Cinemaholics merch uh, through our website. You can get hoodies, shirts, shot glasses, and the like. And you can also support us non-financially by leaving us just a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate that as always. So we have a big episode this week, a bunch of reviews, and we're in the craziness of December. So we're just going to kick things off right away. Uh, Short-ish of topic section before we get into everything. Got to announce Extra Milestone, our film anniversary bonus pod is out right now. Sam Noland is joined by Emily Kubin-Kanek this past week to talk about Battleship Potemkin, Harvey, and Clue. Uh, quite a triple feature. Uh, I'm very excited about this one. Their conversation about Battleship Potemkin is really great. Uh, it's, I think, our second time covering a silent film. We have not done enough of those, so really, really happy to hear that one. And I will not give it away, but we do have another, uh, a couple of more silent films coming at the near future, so definitely keep your ears out for that. We also have uh, a new episode of The Big Stream, our YouTube live stream where I get on the internet and have technical issues, but I try to make the best of it and talk about relevant movie industry things. So if you've been waiting for Cinemaholics to have more news coverage, you can check out The Big Stream on our YouTube channel. That's where you'll find me kind of going through industry news. Uh, This past week, I talked a lot about the HBO Max uh, feud with between them and Christopher Nolan and kind of a bigger conversation about streaming since it is called the big stream. Hoping to do a few more streams this week, but with the holidays coming around, uh, I am definitely uh, a little behind on on doing more streams than, than I'd like to do because it's really fun. I enjoy it. Uh, we also have our interview with Coleman Domingo on the podcast feed right now that came out uh, just a few days ago. I got to talk to Coleman Domingo about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. So you can read the interview on cinemaholics.com or listen to the whole thing. I definitely recommend listening to the podcast version, it's a standalone episode on the Cinemahawks podcast feed, because you really get a sense of like how he's talking about you know, the words themselves, and it's, it's really great. I'm super honored to catch up with him uh, for the first time, and uh, Domingo is a fantastic, fantastic actor in Ma Rainey, as we'll talk about. Okay, we have a brief movie catch-up to do, because it's that time of year, like I said, where Myself, Abby, Will, we're, we're trying to catch up on a lot of things. Uh, we're trying to see a lot of films before we put out our final like top movies of the year list. That said, we aren't going to be doing our top 10 films of 2020 until after the new year uh, because we want, the, we want the extra time. <laughs> we don't get screeners for everything, so uh, it's just helpful to uh, catch up. And sometimes we just have to catch up on things that we never got screeners for. And it can be a little tricky, but we're going to do our best. That said, uh, let's talk about a few things we have seen. I did see Soul um, just a few days ago, the new Pixar movie. Uh, Just going to point out that I did see it. I really, really loved it. I'm really looking forward to talking about it in a few days, and I hope that it's a fruitful conversation. Uh, And also, if you want more Soul coverage, uh, I'm going to be talking about that one with Aaron Dicer and Andrew Ormsby on Sift Pop, uh, one of our one of our favorite podcasts, movie podcasts, uh, to check out in addition to Cinemaholics. And uh, I know Abby will, I think Abby, you said that you might be seeing Soul. Did you manage to catch it or are you going to see it this week? 
Uh, yeah, I've actually seen it twice now. Um, I watched it once after Thanksgiving and then again last night for a review that will be out on Crooked Marquee this week, I believe. So uh, yeah, I, I like it a lot and I'm excited to talk about it more with you. Sounds good to me. Uh, I also saw Anything for Jackson, which Abby, you were the first person who told me about this one. And uh, I know it's on your radar for sure. This is the new Shudder horror film. I managed to see that and I really enjoyed it. It might make it into my top 25, depending on a few other films that I have slated for the rest of the year, but hope other people get to that as well. Uh, I also saw American Utopia, which Abby and Will, you were raving about. I enjoyed it. It, you know, David Byrne isn't like my favorite, uh, like musical artist or anything. Like his music isn't like amazing to me, but I did really love the set pieces. It was a really fun watch and uh, really accessible because it's on HBO Max. And all three of us have seen this next one, Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. so, Will, you you saw this uh, recently. Abby, you saw this back in March. I watched it right after Will. So it was kind of a weird consecu- uh, consecutive order there. But I think it's safe to say all three of us really dug this one, right? Uh, yeah, for me, absolutely. It might be my movie of the year right now. Wow, that's high praise. I I, I like it. It's a, it's a real oddity. Um, my My initial reaction to it was like, it's one of those movies that I think has kind of grown in my estimation the more that I think about it. Um, when I watched it initially, I wasn't sure quite what to make of it. And then uh, that was actually followed by an interview with the Ross brothers who were present at um, True False. This was like one of the last things I got to do before everything locked down. Um, and it was a really cool and fruitful discussion that made me like the movie a lot more. Um, and it it felt like a really unique viewing experience getting to watch it with an auditorium full of full of people who are reacting to it in a lot of different ways. Um, so but it's, jealous. It's, yeah, it's it's a really distinctive movie. And I think it's it's a really unique piece of art. Yeah, I hope people check it out. It's a 99 cent rental on uh, Amazon right now. And I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's not my movie of the year, but that this is another one that I have is probably going to be cemented in my top 25. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, it's not, I don't know if it is my number one, but it's definitely in my um, top five for sure. I just think it's such, like Abby was saying, it's such a unique and uh, compelling film. And uh, I can see it not really working for everyone, especially if you have a low tolerance for uh, drunks <laughs> kind of spewing on. But um, I don't know. Yeah, it, it just felt like a such a like 2020 experience, at least like early 2020 experience. I was really glad that I got the chance to watch this year. Last one we have here is Another Round. I've heard so many good things about this, and I think I haven't seen this one, but I think, Abby, you and Will have seen Another Round by now, correct? Yeah. 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 I just uh, caught up with this last week to uh, review for Crooked Marquee, and I liked it so much. It's, uh, I think it's a really, uh, it's it's an immensely likable movie, I think, but I like that it is a, um, such an, a nice portrayal of male friendship, um, especially male friendship in middle age, that um, it's, I think it's extremely charming. It's, uh, well, did, I think you might have talked about this a little bit uh, after seeing it at, at TIFF, but it's uh, Thomas Vinterberg's sort of comic drama, I guess, about a group of um, kind of middle-aged school teachers who decide to uh, experiment with the theory that man operates best when uh, slightly drunk. So they're trying to like maintain a light buzz to see how it, uh, how it improves their, their lives or their productivity. And it like, they, they all experience positive effects, but I think it's arguable that the, uh, the reason for those effects has more to do with their, um, 
community and accountability to each other than it does the actual drinking. Yeah, I mean, um, I know a lot of people are really digging this one. And when I saw a TIFF, I liked it as well. I think it was if it wasn't the last movie, it was definitely like one of the last three ones I saw at the festival. And um, yeah, I mean, it's very easy to see why this one is getting so much love and appeal. And um, I, don't, I didn't I don't know if I fully loved it just because I found the plotting of it kind of, I guess, predictable a little bit or maybe a little familiar. But I do think it is a very rewarding and uh, easily accessible film. And I am nervously awaiting when they're probably going to do an inevitable like English language remake with like, I oh, know, I know Chris Evans. And, yeah, it's uh, inevitable. I know. I, I <laughs> actually I, I cast it. I cast it completely within like the first few minutes. And I was like, yeah, Manzoukas is for sure in this one somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. Which, I mean, you know, I mean, it'll be whatever. It'll be okay, I guess. But it'll just be like, what's the point? Just watch the original. It's it's successful. Yeah, enough, I so. think a lot of what makes this one special is how um, how subtle and tender it is. And I think that is something that would probably not translate over super well. Like, the, I think you would get mostly, mostly the drinking and falling around. I don't think you'd get as much of, like, the soul-searching stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think what is so appealing about it is the fairly like European aesthetics or like the, the qualities of it that are so tied to Denmark, even though it is a fairly universal story that, I mean, like there is a way to do it kind of similar, like with downhill or this year, like you can tell that in American fashion, but I just don't, or with girl with dragon tattoo, if you want a more favorable example. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not to say that like all English language or English language remakes are bad because that's not the case. But um, yeah, I just it just seems like something that would be botched fairly easily uh, in translation. But who knows? Maybe they may not even do it, but we'll see soon enough, I suppose. All right. Well, let's move on to our listener voicemails. Last week we asked, all right, which Disney announcements are you most excited about? Uh, we talked about a few of them and we had like a more general conversation last week about how we're feeling of like kind of the the glut of Disney content that's coming our way. So you can listen to last week's episode if you want our more general thoughts. But we had some interesting um, recommendations from people or things that, they, that stood out to them. I'm going to play this first one from Tim. Here's what Tim had to say. So the project I'm most excited about uh, is the Mysterious Benedict Society with Tony Hale and Kristen Schaal. And uh, it is neither a Marvel nor a Star Wars property, so most people ignored it. It is, however, a best-selling children's book, young adult series. Um, It's a really great series. I read it with my kids. um, Books by Trenton Lee Stewart. And... uh, I guess it was only a matter of time before it was adapted for the screen. So I am really looking forward to that. I have no recollection of any of the Marvel announcements. And some of the Star Wars ones uh, seemed intriguing. I'm glad Diego Luna will get to continue on. I don't remember his name or his character from Rogue One, but uh, I think he's got a series. And did they say Lando Calrissian's coming back? That would be fun. If that's a thing, but really, I have no no memory of uh, <laughs> any of the details. Besides the one I'm looking forward to, the Mysterious Benedict Society. Yeah, that's, I can kind of relate. I feel like every time I try to remember stuff that got announced, like there's a few that like stick out in my memory, but it's hard for me to pinpoint the ones that have really like captured my imagination. So I can kind of relate with that. I have to say uh, mysterious Benedict society. Interesting um, that that stuck out so much. I remember hearing uh, earlier this year, I think it was like a month or two ago that this was, this was originally a Hulu thing. 
Uh, but then it's now coming to Disney Plus. But I, I have to admit, I, this is a TV series. I don't really have any sort of like knowledge or like any ground point for the book series. Do either of you know what this is or are interested in it? No, I, I hadn't heard about this and uh, I'll, I'll definitely look into it. It's exciting that there were some items that were not related to uh, previously existing IP. Um, I mean, in terms of like stuff that we're super right. familiar with, obviously <laughs> this, this is based on a book. Is, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It kind of is, but uh, yeah, it's it's a little, that sounds a little different. And I, I like both Tony Hale and Kristen Schaal. So I will be excited to check that out when it hits. Same. Yeah, I mean, I he was right. I hadn't heard of that one, uh, probably because Disney kind of took the shotgun approach and just announced everything at the same time. So the uh, kind of more flashy stuff got the attention more than some of the more probably interesting and and unique stuff that um, may not have as much uh, notoriety behind it. But that certainly sounds more interesting to me than a lot of the other stuff they mentioned. So hope for the best there for sure. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, like Flight Attendant is like the number one original on HBO Max. And that's technically based on a book, but it's still it's like it's still cool to me that this this stuff can still be as successful as it is like shows and miniseries that, you know, it's based on a book, maybe something like Queen's Gambit, for example. But it's not something that we're all as familiar with. So it does it feels more original. <laughs> and uh, I, I think that that definitely is uh a nice silver lining to us feeling a little bit like it's just nothing but stuff we've sort of seen before. Um, and then we have one more voicemail to play. This is from Taylor, who left us a voicemail last week. So thanks for uh, pitching in again. Uh, he had some interesting recommendations. So let's listen now. Hey there, Cinemaholics. Hope you're well. Uh, so I have to say that overall, I'm generally uh, underwhelmed. I just am craving a little more original content here. Doesn't seem like we are getting any. Uh, or we're getting very little. So there were two that stood out to me. One was announced a couple months ago, I believe, but they like brought it up again. Uh, and one I just found out about. So first is the Robert Zemeckis directed Pinocchio with Tom Hanks as Geppetto. Something about that just does it for me. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I hope that it's good. Uh, again, it's not an original story, but you know, I like Robert Zemeckis. I like Tom Hanks. Let's see where it goes. Uh, the next is the Moon Knight. I think it's going to be TV show um, or Netflix show or, or Disney Plus show. Oh, God, I can't even keep up with it anymore. Uh, at any rate, I love Moon Knight as a character. I was shocked to hear that Marvel was taking a chance on Moon Knight. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, how they're going to do it because it's a pretty adult character. Um, but we'll see. I'm looking forward to that a lot. Yeah, I, I have to say, I it kind of glossed over with me as well that the Pinocchio remake was going straight to Disney Plus because it just everything feels like it is. But that's kind of interesting. Oh, is that official? I didn't. I know that was being rumored, but did that get officially announced to Disney Plus at this point? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's going straight to Disney Plus. That was revealed on the tenth. So okay. Yeah, I must have missed that one. So it looks like that's like a big strategy moving forward is uh, a lot of the remakes that aren't the big ones like Cinderella, Beauty and the Beast, like that size, like Lion King or whatever, yeah. that they're just going, you know, because the Peter Pan and Wendy one is going straight to Disney Plus as well. 
is uh, Guillermo del Toro involved with this one at all, or is that still his that's own project one. that he's working on? Yeah, that's, on? The, that's the, uh, the other one. Okay. The Netflix stop motion one. Yeah, that's that's coming out. Okay, next that's what year, I, I thought. Yeah. Yeah. I think having having seen his name attached to the witches, there was right. one part of me that was like, oh man, did that get folded back into the the Robert Zemeckis universe? Because right. that's a bit of a disappointment, if so. No, it's, right. it's confusing because there's technically three Pinocchio movies right now. There's the Roberto Benini one that like where he plays Geppetto. That just I think it's Didn't coming he out. Also play. Didn't Benini also play Pinocchio yeah. in a Pinocchio adaptation like years ago? Yep, he directed that one as well, and it's notoriously That's terrible. So strange. Yes. Okay. It, yeah, because yeah. I knew I knew that was a thing. Yeah. Hey, don't forget Man. about the Pinocchio movie that we're making. Um, right. And this is more than three. So. <laughs> right. Um, Pinocchio sixteen still lion. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm of the opinion. I said this in our uh, extra milestone about Pinocchio that like even though I I am a fan of Zemeckis, he hasn't really. Uh, been proving himself of late but i'm a fan of uh him and tom hanks i just don't think pinocchio works in live action i just think it's an inherently animated story that's why i'm excited for the guillermo del toro one because i think he'll do a great job and i think stop motion will be beautiful for that story but i just think when you bring it to live action it's just a terrifying story Um, and this is this is meant to be a live action remake of the Mm -hmm. the original animated pinocchio so it's not it's not going to be a yeah with this uncanny valley animation i was going to say it's not going to be a motion capture nightmare necessarily which is what i would have thought there's going to be intertextuality and nostalgia and all of that wrapped up into it, which is why I think like, I want Del Toro to give me nightmares with his oh, absolutely. interpretation. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, to be fair, like I, I think the story should be scary, but the, the live action ones always just end up being creepy. Like not like scary, yeah. like, Oh geez. Like it's settling. Like, right. It's like, I'm a real boy. <laughs> it's just, I don't know. It doesn't do it for me personally. Right. Yeah. We've I, already I had the, uh, we've already had the, the slow, creepy version of there are no strings on me so i mean mm-hmm. we could always do it again mm. yeah yes the age of ultron classic Indeed. movie trailer right yeah oh my guess goodness. what disney owns marvel now surprise can <laughs> yep yep all right well thank you um taylor and tim for sending us your voicemails we don't have a question for next week since we are going to have a crammed show it's going to be episode 200 next week so very excited about that uh very uh Feeling feeling pretty pretty good about making it such a long way. Two hundred episodes. Um, I def I think this is a first. I don't think I've ever been part of a podcast that's gone on this long. So yeah, I certainly have. I guess yeah. So that's that, that's going to be quite an event. I don't think it's going to hit me until next week, but it's going to be wild for sure. And Abby's going to be like, yeah, it's, it's we we really came a long way, guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. Like <laughs> since so September. Long. Yeah, that's right. Uh man. All right. Well. All that said, let's move on to our first review of the week. Let's talk about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. A one, a two, a you know what to do. This would be an empty world without the blues. I try to take that emptiness and fill it up with something. They want to call me Mother Blues. That's all right with me. It don't hurt none. <laughs> Way down south and I... Where's the, uh, the horn player? I got a friend. Come on, Libby. You rehearse like everybody else. I'm going to get me a band and make me some records. I know how to play real music, not this jug band shit. You call that playing music? Yeah, I know what I'm doing. Go on and fire me. I don't care. When I got there, they began to say... 
Sooner you understand it, and what you say is what Ma said account. <laughs> we'll be ready to go in 15 minutes. We'll be ready to go when Madam says we're ready to go, and that's the way it go around here. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is a new film directed by George C. Wolf, and it is now on Netflix. This was written by Ruben Santiago Hudson. It's based on the well-known and certainly iconic August Wilson play of the same name. Uh, a lot of people credit the August Wilson play with preserving the legacy of Ma Rainey herself, who is a real person. She was considered like the mother of the blues in the early 20th century. She was very well known as this movie depicts. And unlike the stage play, we see things that happen outside of the main narrative. And this film actually opens up with Ma Rainey, played by Viola Davis, actually performing. And we get a sense of her star power and the hold that she has on the her Southern Black audience. Now, this new film comes with a lot of a lot, of, a lot of things that are under the narrative. This is the final film portrayal of Chadwick Boseman, who co-stars with Viola Davis, and uh, he he actually passed away while this was in post production. And definitely a very uh, a very heavy part of that subject matter. Uh, this is another film we're talking about that took place um, in I think not took place. Sorry, it takes place in Chicago, but it was filmed in Pittsburgh. So I definitely was keeping an eye out for Will Ashton. I did not see him. Um, in your 1927 suit, Will. So that was a disappointment for me. I got edited out of the film, unfortunately. <laughs> not really. No, this one I was not actually a part of. I should clarify. Uh, and oh, I forgot to mention that this is part of Denzel Washington's 10 picture deal, um, which was originally part, uh, is still with HBO, but unlike Fences, it actually got moved to Netflix. Um, I'm not sure why. I, I, I don't remember the details of that story of how this went down, but that said, it's on Netflix, and that's the point. The story follows uh, Ma Rainey, who is trying to record an album uh, in 1927 Chicago with a record company that is kind of pressuring her to get everything done, but she shows up super late. And while she is not at the studio, her band, uh, played, who includes her trumpeter, played by Chadwick Boseman, his name is Levy, and the leader of the band, Cutler, played by Coleman Domingo, kind of sparring with each other or, you know, over the politics of the band, over which songs get played. And we also, rounding out this bag, have Glenn Turman, the legendary Glenn Turman, uh, who uh, plays Toledo, a uh, pianist in the band. We also have Michael Potts as the double bass player. We have Johnny Coyne, who owns a recording studio. We have Taylor Page here as Maz Young. Um, she's kind of like a girlfriend because, yes, this this uh, play kind of picks up something that was kind of ambiguous in history, but is accepted generally that Ma Rainey was a lesbian. Um, she was married um, but uh, to a man, but I think that there are there are historians who kind of look at her life and uh, that is an interpretation it's based on rumors and things like that uh we also have uh Dusan brown as sylvester ma's nephew and we have jeremy shamos as ma's manager Irvin. so it's a small cast i named just about everybody who has a speaking part uh, almost and it's the story of these characters kind of colliding in one very hot pressure cooker day, trying to get this album out despite 
their difference of philosophy and their difference of black pain. Um, there's a lot of monologuing in this film. It is extremely stagey, um, which is interesting following our prom um, conversation last week. I know, Abby, you were, you were saying that uh, the prom for you didn't work necessarily as much because you didn't find it to be as stagey, if I recall. Uh, so I'm curious, what did you think of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom? What did you think of the performances and how this film really turned out? That's that's a good question. Um, so I know I, I kind of dinged prom last week for for not being stagey enough. There are parts of Ma Rainey that I feel are too stagey. So I'm going to be real difficult this week. Um, <laughs> Where is the Goldilocks uh, play movie for Abby? Right. I mean, I, I feel like musicals do best when they are hyper stagey. I feel like plays Agreed. do best when they're not. So I think this is something that calls for I don't know, a little more, a little more subtlety. There are some great performances in this. Um, I think Chadwick Boseman has been talked a lot. I mean, talked about a lot, of course, because of the fact that he he passed away this year, but um, but also just for the strength of this performance. And it is a really strong performance, but it's also one that is extremely stagey. And I think sometimes it doesn't always work energy wise. I feel like there are kind of differing amounts of of energy that are being brought to, uh, being, being brought to the film. Like I think Coleman Domingo does a great job throughout. I feel like, uh, Cutler is a character who is easy to understand kind of, kind of through and through. Um, Levy is a little bit harder to get a handle on. And part of that is because I feel like that energy varies so wildly from scene to scene. Um, and I, I think it's possible that the character is written that way. It just sometimes comes off like, like he's trying to go for something slightly different than everybody else is. Um, I also think that Viola Davis is great in this. Um, she's, I think she gives a, a really interesting um, speech where she's, she's talking to Cutler about why it is that she is as difficult as she is in the, uh, in the recording studio. And it's just because she knows that her voice has value, but that's about it. Um, and so she's she's a woman who knows exactly what she's worth and she's going to get people to to treat her as such because she knows that she is valuable to them and she's going to try and uh squeeze every amount of um I don't I don't, I don't know if subservience is the right term but every every amount of respect that she possibly can out of mm-hmm. the uh the control. white recording engineers yeah and every amount of control that she possibly can yeah um which is I think it's it's really interesting it's kind of like the equivalent of um like, you know, that this American life episode where they discuss, uh, contract writers and why they're so ridiculous. Like the reason that contract writers are so ridiculous is because if the most ridiculous details are right, then you know that the show's going to go well and nothing's going to go haywire. It's, it's almost like that in terms of like, I'm being ridiculous and intense because I want to command respect from people who won't give it to me otherwise. Um, so yeah, I think all in all, it's I I thought it was a really interesting and and well acted, uh, well acted piece of performance art. I don't know that it, it it feels very much like a filmed version of a play. I don't know that you can really get away from that too much. Um, but I think as as it is, it's it's still really strong. Yeah, I think that observation is absolutely the case. Like, I don't see how anyone could say that this doesn't feel like very, very much like a play just brought to cinema. I think like people's criticism of that will just vary based on their own preferences. So I good to point that out. Uh, I, to add a few more things, uh, Levy himself is based on a fictional character. Um, so Ma Rainey is based on a real person, but uh, just about everybody else is like a concoction. So just important to keep that in context. 
And uh, yeah, let's go to you, Will. What, what did you think of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom? Did this one sing for you? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm not too far off from where Abby is in that um, I do think similar to where I felt with Fences um, a few years back, it does feel like uh, the stage portions of it didn't fully make the transition into cinema. It does feel like what you were saying, like it is a film production of a stage show, which is fine. Like, I don't think it needs to be super cinematic in order to be successful. But I, I do think those limitations can be felt, particularly in like some scene transitions. Like, I don't think it fully works as far as what's capable or trying to do here but um to guess go against what you're saying i do think this is as for as good as viola davis is in the film and she is magnificent i do think this is chadwick boseman's movie through and through and the um the kind of like larger in life presence that he brings to this i think was actually very fitting because it fit the character of levy or sorry levi um and i felt like not only was it sorry levy um not only was it appropriate for uh, the character in that like he's trying to like demand the sense of respect the sense of like that he is getting the uh, attention that he's felt is due but it did feel like for obvious reasons like Chadwick Boseman may have known that this was his last chance to really prove himself as an actor and he just puts everything on the line and uh, I, I do think as opposed to Denzel Washington's performance in Fences which was kind of going for a different thing like for a similar vibe in that like the character is kind of like larger in life and he's like trying to like kind of command the attention of the room that just felt like as a director denzel washington didn't really like do the work there it just kind of felt like he was doing his stage performance just in front of cameras to me and that didn't fully work for me there it but with um this performance from chadwick boseman it does really work because i just think there is such a uh rawness and a tenderness to his performance that that feels so raw and like like this feet are on fire and that he's just like constantly like trying to like prove himself or to make something of himself which felt very appropriate for the character and ultimately heartbreaking uh for a variety of reasons and, and to me like that's the key to the film's success like it's, i think everything about the film works on its own like i think it's fine um i do think a lot of supporting performances are very good as well like we said coleman domingo is very good as well as um glenn i forget his last name um do you remember glenn terman glenn terman i think he's also quite good as well um but yeah like i said th- this is uh for all intents and purposes, in my view, um, Chadwick Boseman's film. And I just think he knocks it out of the park. And when he probably gets an Oscar for this, it'll be well-deserved for a variety of reasons. Yeah, so I'll chime in. Yeah, I definitely agree more with Will on Boseman's performance here. I think that it is truly, truly good. And yeah, I think it's his Oscar to lose at this point, despite it being such a stacked competition this year. There are a lot of actors who would be very deserving of an Oscar for for best actor. Uh, Riz Ahmed is the first that comes to mind uh, to me, for example. Uh, that said, yeah, I, I, I personally believe that even if Bozeman had not passed away, I think this would still be a very buzzy uh, awards consideration for him because for me personally watching this film, I couldn't take my eyes off of him. I thought that every time he was uh, in the room uh, trying to make his case or sparring with these characters, I just found the performance to be just so lively and lived in. And uh, it, it sold me despite the formatting being something that I typically don't like as much. I typically 
to kind of uh, agree with you, Abby, I, I typically don't jive with these kinds of performances where they're monologuing like they wouldn't play on film because it just doesn't feel as natural. You know, in a play, it really works. In a play, like these characters are supposed to be stationary and central and you're swept up in it. But in a film, the I think the language of a scene like that just doesn't really translate as well, which is the same thing I, I would agree with uh, in terms of like, that being a bigger issue for me in Fences. But I think what makes me like this a lot more than Fences is uh, the character dynamics are, for me, way more memorable. There wouldn't make this movie as good as it is. I think the two chief ones, uh, or that's, you know what, the three chief ones are Levy and Cutler, Cutler and Ma, and Levy and Ma. And I think what's remarkable about all three of those is that the majority of the dynamics we see are the first two we don't see levy and ma like talk that much but because cutler is like their intermediary there's we don't need to the the tension is like really really easy and palpable to to understand just by how these characters go through coleman domingo's character who i think is like the real underdog here the person who's really punching above his weight in a role uh that could otherwise be thankless but i hope it's not for really bringing both of these two, ele- helping elevate these two characters. And yeah, I think on the whole, this movie really, really works. It's definitely not one of my favorites of the year, unfortunately, for a lot of the reasons we've kind of discussed. But yeah, I think that uh, this is just such a well-made film. I want to shout out the costumes and the attention to to detail for the period piece of it, even though there's not a lot of locations. I just, I was very... Uh, immersed in this one. I felt like I was in the time period. And uh, if, if it wasn't for a sort of like last part of the film moment that I think it makes sense thematically, conceptually, it's a painful moment. For some reason, it just did not, it hit me, but it just did not feel as authentic to the story to me and we can't get into detail but yeah that's just how i feel i think it's a otherwise it's a fantastic film and uh definitely worth seeking out one of the better netflix films to come out this year for sure uh but what what do you think abby so you were were talking about bozeman's performance and uh it sounded like it didn't click for you as well so yeah what, what would you say in response to that yeah, um, I think I I think I agree with you on a lot of that, John. Um, that I think any issues that I have with it are are probably with the fact that it's it's a lot of monologuing and it doesn't always feel super um, super natural uh, to the yeah. uh, to like the way that you would expect to see that in a film. Like I I think you can you can easily see why Levy is such like a dynamic and star making part for whoever has that there's a lot to work with there and i think chadwick boseman obviously has like had the the energy to really make that sing i think he did a great job um it just i think is the way that that progresses in film i think requires a slightly different language to make it work as well uh than it does in uh in a theatrical setting um but i do think yeah that boseman gives a fantastic performance and i agree with will that even if he hadn't passed away this year that it would for sure mark him as as somebody to watch awards wise um and obviously he's gained a, he had gained a lot of goodwill over the years for uh black panther and uh 42 and like a lot of really great roles this is obviously another another kind of feather in that cap um but yeah and i i think i also agree that the um the final moment that we can't quite talk about for spoiler reasons um i think also doesn't quite click for a lot of those same reasons for me as well. And that might also kind of be part of the reason that it didn't always work for me the way that it's worked for other folks. All right. 
Uh, I guess we can get into our final thoughts on this one. Definitely want to hear, of course, from you, Will. Uh, if you had any other positives or negatives you wanted to throw out there, uh, I'll say for me, the only the last thing I'll mention is that I really, really liked how they played a Ma in this. Uh, I thought she was such a terrorizing figure in this movie. She was just scary and uh, very imposing. And uh, Abby, what you said, I agree with 100% about just the way that she commands that respect and, and the sort of explanation for why she is so difficult. It's a great commentary on the music industry and celebrities in general. It's very, very thought provoked, very like food for thought kind of stuff. And uh, definitely made the film feel a lot more well-rounded than it probably would otherwise would have been if it had just sort of like painted her as like a one-dimensional diva. I think this film would really would have suffered. But uh, it's August Wilson, so you can expect that it's going to be far more nuanced and uh, deep. Uh, so I, I am curious what a longer film would have been like. This is only an hour and 34 minutes, and it's a long play that they're adapting. So there's a lot they leave out. It made me kind of yearn for more. I kind of wish we could have seen more of the recording process, for example, because the music itself is just really great, well done, um, really great performers um, doing the voices, for example. I know, like, um, I forget the name of the vocal artist who did Ma Rainey's uh, blues singing, but she is fantastic. It sounds so true to the, like, jazz and the blues of that era. So uh, I give this one a lot of praise. I, I am a very, very low, but uh, it's uh, B plus, but it's still a B plus all the same. It's a really, really easy film for me to recommend. Uh, but Will Ash, what, what about you? Any last final thoughts you want to add and your grade? Sure. Yeah. Um, you both touched on topics that um, I was hoping to discuss and why I feel I ultimately like this movie a little bit more in Fences, which is not a film that I was necessarily that critical on. I just, I didn't, I think, fall in line with a lot of the praise I got at the time. But um, as you were alluding to, John, like I think the fact that um, Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman don't have a lot of scenes together, I think is part of the reason why this actually works. Because not only do we have kind of the more grounded characters kind of bouncing off between both of them, but I think in Fences, having Viola Davis and Denzel Washington together and kind of combating on film for a lot of it just kind of made it like kind of overwhelming at times because just like these two like big a performers just like kind of going back to back to the point where in addition to like the kind of extended length there it just kind of felt a little exhausting by the time it got done whereas this movie like you were saying it's a little bit more uh contained it's a little bit shorter so that i think that doesn't have that sense of like kind of overwhelming that or at least for me at least it didn't feel quite as overwhelming as that movie did ultimately but um yeah i also think that the uh, kind of like performative aspects of their performances actually works better for me here than it did in Fences as well, because the, the fact that the characters themselves are meant to be fairly performative and they are, you know, actually performers. So it made sense to me that they would be kind of large and like wanting to demand all this attention stuff. But like I said, the fact that it is able to be balanced out by these kind of more understated performances, including from um, Jeremy Somos, who I thought was also pretty good as well. I forgot to mention him. Uh, earlier but I mean I, I think the cast all around is pretty good and uh, I, I do think that they are able to kind of uh, level it out and you know have the the big performances from our two leads and then having the kind of more restrained performances uh, make it a little bit easier and palatable as far as its film presentation but um, by and large I'm not quite as high as I guess you are John because I'm a little bit closer to a low B high B minus territory not surprising <laughs> for me but um, yeah I, I do think it, it doesn't quite make that transition to film enough to where like I can overlook that or that I'm able to get into it 
quite as successfully. But um, I do think, by and large, what works here does really work well. And like I said, that um, Chadwick Boseman performance does, I think, ultimately really tie together in a very strong and compelling way. And like you were saying, John, the fact you just can't take your eyes off that performance, and you're just so mesmerized by it, uh, is really a testament to what a great talent we lost. And um, it is, at the very least, a you know great tribute to him and, and certainly to his legacy. But um, yeah, for me, I'm I'm going to ultimately go with a low B on this just because, like I said, what I do like really, I, I do like, but I don't think it's enough for me to fully uh, overlook some of the criticisms I have with it. All right. So low B for Will, low B plus for me. Abby Chessy, you get the last word on Marini's Black Bottom. Gosh, no pressure. Um, I think I, I'm kind of in a similar territory. Uh, I, I would probably give it a solid middle B. Uh, I think there's some really solid performances in here. You can tell that the writing is really great. Um, I think it's very respectful to uh, to August Wilson's work as a, as a play, which is evident from all the people involved. Um, I think there are some, some stagey elements that don't quite make the transition. I know we've talked about that a lot. I also agree that it would have been cooler to see like, yeah, more of the recording session, more of their their dynamics as a band. Um, but I think what we do get is pretty strong. Um, yeah, I think given all of that, I think it's it's pretty much in, in solid B territory for me. I think it's a it's a strong output from Netflix. It's got some strong featured performances. All right. So I, I guess you could say we were all in B tween the same grade. Anyway. That's Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I know, Abby, you were about to just cut me to pieces. Womp, so. womp. Uh, you can watch Ma Rainey's Black Bottom right now on Netflix. Let's talk about a film that premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival. This is currently a frontrunner for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. If I had to make a prediction right now, I'd say this is probably the most likely to win. Uh, just based on what I'm kind of sensing at the moment, I think it has a really, really strong shot. Yeah, high praise for um, Greenland here. <laughs> Close. Uh, not Greenland, Nomadland. We'll talk about Greenland soon, of course. Uh, this is the new film from Chloe Zhao. Uh, she did, la- not last year, uh, the year before last, uh, The Writer uh, which was a very good film. I really enjoyed that one. Um, her debut film, Songs My Brothers Taught Me, came out of 2015. She's been a pretty buzzy indie director ever since, and she was supposed to have a Marvel film out this year, The Eternals. But of course, that did not come to pass for COVID reasons. Despite that, uh, Nomadland still made its appearance. And like I said, it is a very buzzy awards film, and I have a feeling it's going to collect quite a few nominations. Um, The screenplay is also by Chloe Zhao. She also edited the film. Uh, It stars Frances McDormand. And uh, I'll say right now, if the first, I think this, if she wins Best Director, I believe this would be the first time a woman won Best Director. And if that's the case, the fact that it would be an Asian woman is uh, truly remarkable. Um, That would be a huge milestone, I think. Uh, But let's talk about the film itself. Abigail Chessy, what is Nomadland all about? Uh, sorry, I, I am not on mute. I was just trying to check and make sure that uh, that you were right on uh, female. Oh, I can fact check winners. that. I, I believe it is. Ka- yeah. Uh, but it, yeah, it's Catherine Bigelow was actually the first person to win Best Director. Oh, so I that forgot. has gone to oh, a woman. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so sorry. I forgot about that. As a, as a okay. Bigelow fangirl, I had to jump on that boat and be like, no, no. Um, Thank you for but, the correction. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, uh, Nomadland uh, tells the story of Fern, who is Frances McDormand's character. And she 
has recently lost her husband and has also recently lost her her home. Her entire town was a mining town that uh, during the recession basically went under shortly after her husband uh, passed away. So she, at the beginning of the film, is packing up all of her belongings into a van and embracing the nomad lifestyle, which is it's a it's a real thing. The uh, the movie is based on a nonfiction book about uh older adults who who followed this lifestyle, which is essentially just going from um, temporary job to temporary job, earning enough money to get by and um, living out of a uh, living out of a van, which is like it, it seems like the kind of thing that a lot of you see a lot of hipster kids doing of like these fancy, amazing tricked out vans. And this is like the actual version of this. Like this is what it what a real life hardworking person who doesn't have a trust fund <laughs> um, does in order to um, in order to, to live this way. Um, and it kind of follows the movie follows Fern as she goes from uh, from place to place and community to community doing this work and encountering friends along the way. Um, pretty much all of whom, with a couple of exceptions, are, are non-actors who are actual like real life nomads, um, because it's in in a way that's really similar to the writer, uh, Chloe Zhao is working with people who actually are, are part of the community that she is trying to tell a story about, which is really cool. Um, Fern also has a uh, relationship sort of off and on with uh, a fellow nomad named Dave, who's played by uh, David Strathairn. Um, and they they kind of have a, a little bit of a romantic connection. Fern is not quite sure if she is ready to kind of do that again after the loss of her husband. So she's she's dealing with some some grief there. Dave is also dealing with, um, reconnecting with, um, uh, with his sort of estranged son who is about to have a baby. And I believe that the son is actually played by, by David Strathairn's real life son as well. Um, so there's a lot of reality and, um, a lot of actual connection that's being displayed in the film. In addition to, um, the story that she's telling, which is, is pretty simple, but also very profound in, um, in the way that it allows these characters to be really open and vulnerable with each other for the short time that they are, that they are together, basically. Yeah. Really glad you mentioned, uh, David Strathairn, San Francisco native who probably recognize him from like the born movies, but, uh, also, you know, he's been in some like shows and stuff that I've liked. So it was really cool to see him pop up here. He's such a good actor. Also just... notably good night and good luck. So that's right. Yeah. Um, so I, I definitely thought this was such a great cast. I mean, you really do feel like this cast is so warm and, and feels so inclusive to the story here. Uh, I have a ton of nice things to say about this film, but you know, Will, you have the most distance on it, I think, probably, because uh, you saw this one back in September, if I recall. Um, you reviewed the film for Cinemaholics. I know you really enjoyed it, but yeah, if you want to like reiterate some of what you liked about this film and wh- why do you think it is uh, just striking a chord with so many critics in general? Yeah. I mean, I don't. Oh, you mean uh, for the uh, episode we did, right? I don't think I end up writing a review for this, if I recall correctly. Oh, maybe you didn't. Oh, OK. Yeah. Maybe I'm thinking of Mondays. Yeah. Uh, Monday. Yeah. Um, yeah. I actually don't think I, I might be wrong, but I don't think I actually wrote a review for this. But um, I did talk about it during our tip discussion. I'll echo there. I, I do think if it isn't the best film I saw this, that year, it's definitely in like the top two or three. Um, just because there is so much about this. I, I do have to echo a lot of what you said. I, I do think it's such a simple and, and very character-driven film, but what it a- is able to accomplish in terms of not only balancing um, real-life like uh, non-traditional actors um, or non-professional actors with you know these seasoned performers and making it fairly seamless, I, I would have to say at least. I, I never really felt throughout the film that um, 
they were as natural or as noticeable compared to our regular performers, but also just the the sense of environment and like how we're able to go to all these different parts of America and we kind of feel it. It feels very lived in, very prominent, but through this perspective that feels very keen and very well realized through uh, not only our direction but our lead performance from France McDormand. And uh, I don't know if she's the front runner for best actress at this point. I imagine she's in the conversation at least, but um, for sure, I, yeah. I mean, I do think you know. I mean. It's, it's obvious that she's a great actress. Like we've, we've known that for years now, but um, this is probably right up there with some of her best work. I, I do think it's such an intuitive and natural performance, but it also feels uh, very specific and very uh, um, poignant at the same time. And I, I do think is a testament to how well she is uh, continued to oppress us as uh, an actress that she's able to once again, produce a performance that uh, is very much in her wheelhouse, but yet full of uh, different nuances and surprises that, are, are very much indebted to her talent. So um, definitely, in my opinion, better than Three Billboards. <laughs> but uh, uh, that shouldn't be too surprising. I I definitely agree with that. I definitely like this film much more than Three Billboards, and it, it makes its case pretty well, I think. Um, you know, sort of capturing like the same uh, thematic type of storytelling about the heartland, I think this is just such a step up from that. And Three, Three Billboards, to be clear, is not a film I dislike or anything. I think that it's a fine film. But yeah, it was a film that I, I did not think worked on all cylinders. Uh, in terms of the predicted uh, nominees, I think for Best Actress, I think it really is going to be between Frances McDormand and Viola Davis. You know, funny enough, we're talking about both these those films in the same week. Viola Davis for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, to be clear. Uh, we, it could go to Carrie Mulligan, depending on how promising Young Woman goes. I know some people are talking about uh, Vanessa Kirby as a dark horse for Pieces of a Woman, which we'll talk about closer to New Year's. And um, I don't know if any of you saw United States versus Billie Holiday, but there are some people who are calling out Andre Day um, for that film possibly uh, breaking through. But yeah, if you ask me, I, I'd say this is probably um, the only reason I think it wouldn't go to Francis McDormand is because she won so recently. And sometimes the Academy doesn't uh, give the award that quickly, but this could be an exception. That said, I think Fiona Davis does such a great job in Maureen's Black Bottom. And, you know, it, who knows? Who knows? Uh, but anyway, for Nomadland, uh, yeah, you know, this film reminded me of so many films that I like and um, does better than some films that I like. Uh, the two main ones would be like Into the Wild with Emile Hirsch, uh, which is a, a film that I, I definitely enjoyed. And I definitely thought, you know, I saw it at a very good time in my life where I was the same age as the character in that film, graduating high school and sort of uh, trying to abandon the comforts that he was so accustomed to, to sort of learn about himself, learn what he's made of and go on this sort of odyssey across like the American uh, landscape, right? Until he gets to Alaska. And that that's a film I really enjoy. But what I like about Nomadland by comparison is just so, it, it's how it's so more relatable and it's narratively balanced. And just seeing this woman's interactions from very small you know, seemingly minor conversations with characters like Linda, um, who, you know, is one of those characters that I, I clearly was like put into the film as somebody who really is like living this life right now. And just their dynamic is just so simply beautiful. And, and then I'd also add, I think this is one of our best movies covering the great recession. I think the great recession is kind of in our rear view mirror right now. It was a decade ago and we're kind of in the middle of what could be, a. Uh, a second one. 
as we're all sort of dealing with financial hardships, we're all sort of dealing with a lot of uncertainty due to the pandemic. Um, it's not exactly escapism for us to you know, pull back the curtain on some of the realities that happened back in 2012 and 2011 and uh, you know, before that when it was really at its height. But, you know, as somebody who during that time, I was very privileged, you know, and I was going to school and things like that. I didn't feel what these characters are feeling. I so appreciate the empathy that this film creates for these characters with no nonsense, you know, no rhetoric or dogma or agenda to it. It really is just telling you the basics of a very fascinating life. And then that's, that's how the film reminds me of um, Jean-Marc Vallée's uh, Wild with Reese Witherspoon. But another film this made me think of a lot, you know, just a, a singular character who decides that the answer to the, the isolation that they're feeling is connection through being a nomad and kind of going out into nature and connecting and making it through any way that she can. And so uh, also a period piece too, that takes place in the 90s. But uh, of, of all those films, I think this one's definitely a slam dunk for me. It's, it's so heartfelt and uh, easily one of my my favorite films of the year. It's probably going to land in my uh, top 10, maybe even, uh, or my top 20, maybe my top 10. So uh, I'm a big fan. Uh, Abigail Chessy, anything to add as we as we get into final thoughts? I'm really curious what your grade for this one's going to be and which, which of us liked this one the most. Yeah, I think my, my grade for this is going to be really high. Um, I was a big fan of the writer and I'm a big fan of this for for very similar reasons in that like it just is, it's very real, it's non-judgmental, it's uh, portrayal of nature is really beautiful in the way that people interact with it. Um, it makes this lifestyle, I mean, it's, it's honest about the, um, about the elements of it that are difficult, but it makes it look really appealing. Like I can see why it would be appealing to Fern to have that experience and to go out on the road and really kind of live life on her own terms. And you can see why it's appealing for the people that she shows who actually do live that lifestyle and the community that they've built for themselves. Um, I think in, in uh, Frances McDormand's performance as well, uh, one of the things that makes it stand out so much is that I think it feels, it feels like a different kind of performance from her than we have seen recently. I know it's something that she's capable of doing, obviously, but it's, it's, uh, it's much more quiet and gentle. Um, and uh, I know that she she also did a ton of like like the actual jobs that that Fern has she had like she went and worked at a wall drug for a while um, as as part of the film so like she did she did the legwork on this which I absolutely believe because Frances McDormand is a hardworking lady um, but there's this uh, this kind of sense of of vulnerability and almost shyness to her that. Um, was really refreshing to me and felt very real and very sweet. Um, I, I ended up, I, I liked Fern as a person a lot by the end of the movie. Um, I also liked Dave as a person a lot by the end of the movie. Like these are, these are characters that feel real and lived in. And you can tell that, um, Chloe Zhao worked with her actors, um, to kind of help them, help them feel like those characters were their own. And it feels like a genuine kind of blend of, of performance in a way, but also of like actual lived experience, like the interactions that uh, Strathairn and uh, Francis McDormand have with, um, with the people that they meet feel, they don't feel staged at all. They feel very, very honest. Like these are actually people that they met and had a relationship with. Um, and I think the, the authenticity of that is something that just feels so unique and rare in film right now. Um, 
apart from people who were like making documentaries. So like to see this done in a, in a fictional film, I think is really, really interesting. And Chloe Zhao is one of the best people doing that right now. Agreed. Yeah. I basically agree with all of that. Um, and did you say what your exact grade was? I did not. Um, I would give this, uh, an A, um, actually probably an A, A plus I'll go, I'll go like max on this because I think it's, um, it's, it's one of the loveliest movies that I've seen this year. Fantastic. That's great to hear. Will Ashton, you know, usually in a situation like this, I'd be like, tell us all about your B minus, but I'm trying to evolve. I'm trying to get a little bit better than that. You're you know? grown. Nomadland taught me to be a bit more, you know, <laughs> real with people and yeah. Yeah. You're adapting. You're, you're growing with the times you're changing <laughs> with the wind. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're, you're doing all that. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think I said it before, but I'm an A minus on the film. Um, I, I do think, like you were saying before, it, it is evocative of films like Into Wild and Wild. But um, I, I do think what Chloe Zhao and Frantz McDormand do with their direction and performances, um, I, I do think it is really honed in and, and lived in, like we were saying, and but also very resonant. But in a way, it doesn't feel like overburdened or like it's like stating the obvious. It, it just allows the characters to flourish in very believable and sincere ways. And it's once again, maybe the fifth hundred film I've said this for this year, but I really wish I did have the chance see in theaters because the cinematography in this is so gorgeous in the way that it's able to capture very minute moments but the, the vast uh the environments and the vastness of the uh environments that they're i'm saying that twice <laughs> um yeah just the 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 sense of setting and place and time uh is just so gorgeously captured that um i, I do wish i had a chance to see that on the big screen especially with the um sound mixing i think is very well done as well so um, yeah, not much more to add than what you two have already said. I think it's a very good film. And if it's on my top 10, like you, John, it'll definitely be in my top 20 for sure. All right. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm just going to heap on more praise and more praise. Uh, I'm also an A minus on this pretty high A minus. And yeah, I just, I keep coming back to something that you touched on Abby, which is it, it would be, it's so hard for a film like this to sell this nomad lifestyle as being believable. Like Fern, you, like you believe Fern would want to do this and has pure understandable motivations to make the decisions that she does, but it does all that. It presents this without glamorizing it. I think that's also a, a huge strength of the writer. I think that just Chloe Zhao's writing, she has such a knack for really capturing the whole of a character and making them, we've said it a million times, but not, I guess not just feel lived in, but feel like they have a past, present, and future that's in like perfect sync um, without it being like predictable and boring. Like you just, you just understand the soul of this character and it's such a tricky balance. And yeah, you know, watching this film, I, I just kept thinking about like all the people I've met in my life who are just like Fern, you know, this, that personality, that these little scenes with her and like a teenage girl that just reminds me of like my fourth grade teacher. Like it's just so similar. And, you know, there's, there's such a beauty in that. And, you know, there, there's so much love and respect for just such a gentle soul like Fern without making her feel like a sage, you know, something that's like inauthentic and unbelievable. And you don't usually see characters like this in films. And we really have to credit Frances McDormand for this performance as well. She's given a lot of great stuff to work with, but I think 
the the true magic of the film is how she's able to just bring uh, a lot of like what made her character so lovable in Fargo uh, to this. And uh, I'm always up for you know the Fargo version of Frances McDormand. Not not to belittle the film as being the same, of course, as that. A completely different aesthetic, of course, but it definitely uh, hints of just what was so. Uh, touching and memorable about that performance. We see a lot of it here too. It's just sad because if she doesn't win, I think it will be because of three billboards being so recent. And this is the film she should have won for, I think, in, in a lot of ways. Um, but uh, we, we will see in a few months um, how this film does. It has a lot of momentum. It won the Golden Lion at Venice. Um, it won People's Choice at TIFF. I mean, this thing is a Best Picture uh, nominee guaranteed, I think. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And if it won, I would not be surprised at all, as I mentioned earlier. So this is being distributed by Searchlight Pictures. It's not going to have a wider theatrical rollout until February 19th. Um, so it is unfortunate we are talking about this a bit ahead of time. But once it gets closer, we will, of course, uh, let you know um, what we think about it with maybe some distance. Again, hopefully a lot of you who haven't had a chance to see it, it did have a virtual window where people were able to see it briefly. Um, but that, alas, has passed by now. Um, it is 108 minutes long, so a very quick watch and definitely worth your time once it's going to be more widely available. Let's move on to our next film, Greenland, which uh, one, of, one of the few screenings I've gotten an invite from that was like a virtual timed screening. Um, it's very interesting here. And I, I did not know a lot about this one going in. I didn't watch any trailers. Uh, this is from the producers of the John Wick franchise. Um, uh, Gerard Butler also produces this and stars in it. It's directed by Rick Roman Wah, who um, I, I think he uh, he did some work. He's like a stuntman. Um, yeah, he did um, Angel's, Angel's Fallen. Fallen. Yeah. Yeah, he wrote and directed that, uh, and he he worked in some other things like a uh, shot collar, which uh, I remember talking about, and uh, snitch even farther back. Uh, but yeah, this this is his newest film, and uh, this one is currently I, I believe it's currently available on video on demand, uh, but it's going to be available on HBO Max and Amazon Prime at some point. Um, it was released theatrical in some territories, and uh, I think it's actually like been in some territories like earlier this year, as early as this summer, but. Uh, yeah. Uh, also written by Chris Sparling. Uh, this also stars Marina Bacar in addition to Gerard Butler Will, and David Denman, Scott Glenn, Hope Davis. Will Ashton, what did you think? Uh, or no, I, I'm jumping ahead. Will Ashton, what, what is Greenland all about? What Can you set the stage for this film? Sure. Yeah. Um, so we follow primarily the perspective of Gerard Butler's character, who is John Garrity, who is a engineer living in Georgia. And uh, he has, uh, a, I guess, a tumultuous relationship with his uh, I, I think it's still his wife, but they're they're split up yeah. at this point. They're like separated uh, legally yeah. or not even legally. I just think that they're going through a pretty severe rough patch. Right. Uh, estranged, I guess would be the word. And um, they have a son, I believe he's like seven or eight, named Nathan, who's diabetic. Um, I, I, I forget if he had something else, but I know he's definitely diabetic, among other things. But um, yeah. yeah, he's returning into their lives for this like little get together they're having with neighbors and family. And uh, he's trying to patch things up. He knows he's in the wrong. He's just trying to do right at this point. And um, as he's at the grocery store, picking up some supplies for this party, he gets a strange... Uh, notice on his phone that there's like the sense that the president basically wants to talk to him. Uh, he picks up the phone and says like, you and your family need to be evacuated immediately. Only them like 
just go to this location uh, and uh, we'll answer more questions there. And he's like, well, that's weird. Um, so, you know, he's driving home. He's seeing a bunch of things like uh, these like big planes flying in the sky, just like this kind of like moody, quiet, uh, unsettled vibe going on. And uh, basically there's this like giant uh, meteor shower that's happening that day. That's what we're watching at the party. And oh, there are uh, comets. Sorry, comets that are... Um, falling but they are expected to kind of fall into the ocean not really make bring a lot of damage to the uh world and environment but uh they miscalculated how far they were going to be going into the general cities and states and uh it's basically this huge uh cataclysmic disaster that's uh waiting to happen sure enough um that's where you kind of get into the your traditional movie uh disaster mode but what surprised me about the film because similar to you I went into this not really knowing what it was, just beyond new Gerard Butler movie. Um, was that I thought it was going to be him kind of doing the Geostorm thing again, where it's like him trying to do like a yeah. Roland Emmerich movie, kind of like Independence Day thing, which isn't really off base, but it's actually more evocative of um, Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds, in that like it's kind of like a this huge like terroristic event that's happening from like a ground level and you're just kind of following the characters from the floor up uh, as far as like what's happening and you're just like kind of finding answers along with them. Right. And, it uh, doesn't have like a ton of like viewpoints. Like you're never in like the government with like right. other characters or anything. It really is just this family's point right. of view on the disaster. And um, I'll say, I mean, at least definitely for the first half or like the first like 45 minutes to an hour, I was like pretty into this. Like I was surprised like how like, unnerving it was and like how absorbing it is just like like we we're saying like it's not doing anything we haven't seen before but this approach is definitely a lot more effective than if it was just like a effects heavy barrage where it's just like we see like all these like overhead shots of like the things going to muck like it, it has like the kind of cloverfield thing where it's like we follow from the floor up so we're kind of finding out with the characters and so it is a lot more effective and a lot more unsettling especially because the movie itself I believe the budget was like 30 to 35 million, if I recall correctly. Yeah, um, it was like 20 to 30 million. Yeah, which is, you know, that's not small potatoes, but like for a movie like this, that's definitely a pretty modest budget. That's like a mid-budget film. And Oh, uh, excuse you, me, 35, 35 yeah, million. That's what I thought, yeah. And I mean, I'll say like, I think they're definitely economical about that budget because like when they do have special effects, they look not great. <laughs> um, like some of them are like sci-fi channel level bad at times. Yeah. But like, <laughs> I, I think... To the credit of the filmmakers and the producers here, like I think they're smart about like using that approach to mime a lot of like real effective terror and like unknown to like very beneficial and, and pretty unsettling results. But I do think as the movie goes along, it it tries to do a little bit more with character and it does kind of show more of the special effects. I, it does kind of lose steam for me by the second half. But I, I do think this is certainly a better film than I expected going into this. Yeah, you really have to manage your expectations. And if you do, uh, like you, I was pleasantly surprised by how much this worked that didn't work. It certainly has a lot of shortcomings, but I guess it was just a surprise to me that the script was pretty coherent and the structure of it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't superfluous. And it, it, like you said, it was things we've seen before, but it tackled them in some new ways. And you just can't deny how gripping a an, an effectively made disaster movie can still be, uh, even when like a lot of people. I just I wasn't in the mood for a film like this, but there are certainly points this film makes about the you know 
the human spirit and how it's able to adapt to crisis, but then also the failure of humans collectively to cooperate on solutions to a crisis and how we kind of turn on each other. And there's there's a lot of interesting stuff there. There there was so much to this script, and I was I was shocked. I was like, well, what what how, how did this happen? Um, as it turns out, this film originally was supposed to be directed by Neil Blomkamp uh, before he kind of landed in director's jail. And Chris Evans was going to be like the main character. So they they had a lot of faith in this. This was going to be like a definitely a much bigger deal, I think, than mm-hmm. ultimately it just kind of got shuffled around and um, they didn't know what to do with this film for a yeah. while. And you can kind of tell. It does um, feel like a script that's been sitting around for a while. It has like a very right. 2007 vibe to it. Right. You know, and they, they, it had been around since like the middle to late teens. So it's not that far back, but yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if someone was like, oh, well, yeah, that's when production started. But really like this script was kind of like floating around back in yeah 2007 or whatever. Uh, but yeah, it's still effective for what it is. And it's, uh, it's a hard film to recommend right now based on just like, you know, there's nothing cathartic about seeing people being very like laissez-faire that like the world is about to change in a very huge way, but people are kind of downplaying it and they can't wait for things to go back to normal to the point where they sort of like pretend that the crisis isn't as severe as it actually is. A lot of people will watch this and definitely have that takeaway. Some people won't, of course, but you know, that is just the nature of uh, where America is out at. Uh, we're very, very divided pop culturally, but yeah, for people who are looking for an escape and uh, maybe they have differing views on what's going on in the world, like current events, um, they'll probably still get it. But uh, for me, just despite this being sort of uh, annoying, um, you know, and not very pleasant, uh, I, I, you know, I, I definitely would say like, you know, I, I don't know if it's like a dad movie, if that counts, but oh, I, I can see a bunch of people liking this. Is it? Yeah, it's absolutely a dad film. I mean, I was going to say, because okay. um, Gerard Butler, I mean, to his credit, he's kind of like one of our last few like genuine B movie stars. That's like of sci- some high profile. Like he's not. Yeah, he hasn't done like a like superhero movie. Like the closest he's done is 300. Right. So it's like he's kind of still riding on that fame. But like the. um. Uh, Phantom Olympus of the Opera is a superhero movie. Come on. What's Superhero musical. Phantom of the Opera. Oh, Phantom of the Opera. Uh, his super singing chops, I guess. <laughs> um, that's a, If you don't know, he, he's not the best singer. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, he has had a surprisingly good amount of success, at least uh, financially with the like Olympus, um, Angel, uh, yeah. I forget, London Has Fallen movies. Um, and, you know, I mean, he is, you know, he's kind of forming his own little niche here. Like I say, there's Geostorm, which didn't do great, but like he can, you know, like uh, find these star vehicles. And like Den of Thieves is probably the, like one of the better ones for him uh, where it's like, you know, like those like all kind of evocative of other movies. But, you know, he's he's just kind of playing them up and, you know, he brings a decent amount of sincerity to each one, which is appealing in its own way. I don't think he's like an amazing actor or anything, but he does have a like fair kind of rough and gruff sort of charisma that. Yeah, that's uh, that's admirable enough. I mean, you know, he has like a good agent, you know, he has somebody who definitely knows how to like put him into like good projects to balance things out, like how to train your dragon. Right. Yeah, that's a good example. Yeah. I I just think of him like like he watches like Independence Day. He's like, oh, I want to do Independence Day. And then they put Geostorm together and he's like, oh, I want to do Heat. And they put like Den of Thieves together. And then this is like, oh, I want to do World of the Worlds. It's like then they put this together for him. And so I want to be Egyptian and then Gods of Egypt. Yeah. (laughs) Was he in Gods of Egypt? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he was like the villain. Oh, yeah, I forgot all about that. I think that. he was nominated for uh, Razzie, I think. Yeah, that, 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 was, that was definitely one of his weaker efforts. But, um, yeah, I mean, I like I said, like I, I think the um, 
the weaker aspects of the second half for me where it just kind of falls into convention it does like kind of the played out like dad trying to find forgiveness angle and stuff like it's not terrible how it's done it's just kind of old hat at this point and like i i kind of wish it was willing to not do that because i feel like those dramatic scenes are kind of sloggy because they, they take away from the tension that was being built from the first half that was like really effective and like pretty consistent throughout that that like first two thirds of the film so it did feel like an underwhelming third act to me but um yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think it's pretty restrained in what it's trying to do. Like, it has big ambitions, but it knows its limitations enough to where, like, it doesn't, like, overstay its welcome or, like, do anything too drastic, at least until the end, to where, like, I, I think it, it like, feels, like, insufferable or, like, annoying in any particular respect. But I know that you had a different experience because, yeah. like, um, you had technical issues while you were watching this that, that might have in, yeah, intruded your viewing experience. I, I had to restart it. Yeah, yeah. So like I said, we watched it in a time virtual thing. And so one, one of the shortcomings of that is like you can pause, but you can't fast forward or rewind. And I was watching it and I stepped away and I accidentally like switched apps because this was on an iPad. So that shut down the screening link. So I had to restart it. And so I couldn't fast forward to where I was. So I literally had to restart the whole thing. And so what I did, I was like literally like, halfway through the film it was like an hour in so i had to like restart it and just put my ipad away and i timed it so i started just doing a bunch of other stuff and then so i had a, an unexpected intermission um yeah. despite that you know it would have been th- yeah it would have been great if you had like a groundhog say thing where you just see how they keep starting <laughs> for different reasons and you're like yeah. quoting along with the movie and uh, oh well yeah yeah, yeah. If, if only if only i uh, had that much free time right yeah. um yeah i i have to say i 2012 is what this movie eventually becomes like and and that's the thing that i hate about it like they didn't have to make it 2012 you know like i wish it had it had not pulled its punches like that Uh, another Roland Emmerich movie yeah yeah but i think ultimately i think it's a little bit better than 2012 just because like there's more going on here Mm -hmm. um i know some people just enjoy that it's just like a campy bad time or a good time with a bad movie kind of thing um this one doesn't have all the flashy you know world ending special effects but like you said the effects are understated that's kind of what's charming about it yeah I mean, 2012 has one of the best chase scenes I've ever seen in a movie. And by best, I mean one of the most hilariously absurd scenes yeah. that I'll, I'll rewatch from time again. again. Yeah, it's, it's just an amazing <laughs> scene. It involves a limo if you want to look it up on YouTube. It's it's an amazing sequence of film. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's too much more I have to add because I think it's pretty uh, simple and straightforward as far as these things are concerned. Uh, my only thing is I'll say that I appreciate that as we we're talking about with Gerard Butler, he tends to play either wife guys or divorce guys. And I like this movie kind of bridges the gap there by having him play like a wife guy and a divorce guy at the same time. And it's just like, you know, healing divide. It's very nice. Uh, Look, try to find he wasn't. Yeah, he wasn't divorced in How to Train Your Dragon. Well, they, I mean, they were just uh, mom unintentionally yeah. separated. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, so yeah. Get facts yeah. straight. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> But... Uh, grade wise, I'm not quite sure where I land. I, I'm curious where you stand on this because I'm classic Will, Will Ashton mode. I'm uh, stuck between a C plus and a B minus because like the stuff I like, same, I really same. do like, but I just find myself so underwhelmed by that third act. I I agree, but yeah, I give it the B minus, very very low. But the reason I give it is because I can see so many people enjoying it anyway and like getting so hooked into it that they can forsake, they can forgive that it's not that bad. Like it's not. It didn't rob the film of its earlier joys. It just sort of like it does. Its climax isn't as exciting as the beginning stuff, but it's just sort of like a winding down. And mm-hmm. that's that's fine. It's all right. For me. Yeah. So, yeah. Low B minus. 
Yeah, that's fair. Because I think like the first two thirds are like B level territory for me, and then like the last last third is like C C plus. So I'll yeah. give it like a low, very low B minus, just because I I think people are gonna if they have like you said moderate to like medium like just like okay expectations for this and they go in they're pleasantly surprised i think they'll mostly enjoy themselves and i do think if you like gerard butler's other movies you'll like this as well because it, it plays the same beats but it's a little bit better than those ones kind of similar to den of thieves and so if you have if you have the right mood and you, you maybe have a few drinks in you, you might enjoy this and it got my mind off of uh covid ironically for like at least an hour or so so i have to give it that <laughs> Yeah, there is there is one moment I will give it toward the end that um, is during a scene where like embers are coming around. And there is one moment that kind of did surprise me where I didn't think that they were going to insert this sort of thing that just sort of like was a referendum on what we had seen before without giving anything away. It has to do with Gerard Butler's character. I did really appreciate that. And there is a moment in the film where things kind of slow down for a family thing that I found pretty effective. So there are moments in the second half that work. It's just like you're saying. They're few and far between. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, like I, I do think like Scott Glenn is good. Like I think he does a nice job, but he's always usually pretty good. But I think he he brings enough like gravitas to this that like even though it's kind of a like so so part, he does you know a nice job with it. It makes it a little bit more palatable than it probably would be otherwise. But yeah, I mean, it just didn't it just didn't work as well for me than the as much as the uh, first half. So, but it's still still a decent enough time overall. Before we move on, Abby Olchesi, I would be remiss if we didn't hear your, because you didn't see this one, but uh, I'm curious what you think of uh, Gerard Butler in light of our conversation. <laughs> Where do you stand with him at this point? That's a good question. I was I was on the uh, the Gerard Butler train in the early days. I'm a I'm a fan of Reign of Fire, um, but uh, oh yeah, I forgot using that too. Yeah, that's yeah, good. that was the first thing I ever saw him in, um, and I I remember enjoying Timeline when it came out. I was in high school though, so you can't really account oh, yeah. for much there. Huh. Um, Bro, yeah. about, I'm, it's like this is oh, a time yeah. machine for me. This remember is, all I'm, these Gerard I'm a, Butler yeah. movies? Yeah, I'm a I'm a I'm a pre 300 Gerard Butler fan. Yeah, for um, me it's Tomorrow Never Dies. That's where he okay, kind of like oh, took man. me by storm. Yeah, how old is he now? Uh, he's like 50. I, yeah, he's got to be in his 50s by now, surely. Something like that, yeah. maybe. Um, but yeah, I I've been hearing some interesting things about this that uh, seemed kind of pleasantly surprising. So I'm 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 curious to check it out. I think of a of a Friday night with a some pizza and beer it sounds like it might actually be pretty entertaining and maybe not in an ironically bad way all of the time just don't invite pierce hawthorne so that's right he can he can stay far away um something i mean because i've got given him a little bit of gruff i do think he's actually generally really good in uh coriopolis the ray fines movie like it's one of those times where i think he does give a good performance i wanted to say something nice sure but like Coriolanus. yeah sorry my bad yeah that um okay okay just to end on a, a nice positive note, because I feel like I'm I'm kind of punching below the belt here for for Gerard Butler. So yeah, say something nice about Gerard Butler yeah. Day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I never saw that one. That's uh, Ray Fine's first film, wasn't it? The first one as a directed? director. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that I, I vaguely remember it, but yeah, I didn't see it. All right. Well, that is Greenland. Talked about it a lot more than I thought we would, but uh, that's not a bad thing, I guess. Let's finish this episode with a retrospective on Small Axe, which is definitely the center of some sort of a film world controversy in terms of whether or not is a, uh, are they films? Is it a TV show or is it a mini series of films? What is this thing? Um, we've talked about a couple of them so far. We talked about Lover's Rock, which is currently being celebrated as the best of the bunch, uh, the must see out of all of them. And a lot of people would say uh, I'm one of them. 
and uh, also Mangrove, which um, I think you and Will, Abby, Will, you talked about Mangrove. Uh, that was the first one. And Will, you've seen all of the Small Axe films. I've seen two of them, Lover's Rock and Red, White, and Blue. Abby, you've seen three, Mangrove, Lover's Rock, and Red, White, and Blue. Um, and then, Will, you saw all those, plus Alex Weedle and Education. So, well, if you can sort of like refresh us, what is Small Axe? And uh, if you want to point out some of the things you liked about the films, and then Abby, you can go next. And then we can talk about uh, are these films or not? I guess we can have that conversation. Yeah, I mean, so um, as we suggested, it's a collection of five films, uh, all directed by Steve McQueen, who is best known probably as the uh, director of 12 Years a Slave, as well as Hunger, Widows, and Shame. Um, Yeah, this is a... Uh, collection of films that primarily tell, uh, I don't believe any of them interconnect, but they all tell stories from uh, the lives of West Indian, West Indian immigrants in London throughout the 60s to about like maybe the early 80s. Um, and yeah, so the first one we talked about was Mangrove, which is um, kind of more your traditional oscar kind of take where it, it followed the 1971 trial of the Mangrove Nine, and that one had uh, Life the Right. And then, um, you know, that was kind of another... Uh, similar to Lover's Rock, that was kind of one of the more um, prestige film or like kind of one of the ones that got some film festival attention. Then, yeah, Lover's Rock is the uh, sort of like a bottle movie in a sense. Like it's it's primarily telling the perspective of these uh, young lovers who interconnect at this uh, party. And it's just like their way of kind of escaping the, the darkness of the world around them. And then uh, Red, White and Blue is the one with John Boyega where we follow um, a young scientist who decides to join the police force in order to change the system from the ground up and kind of see if he can do some good through a corrupt system. And then uh, Alex Weedle is a biography or biopic that tells the story of the novelist of the same name who was sentenced to imprisonment in 1981 for the uh, Brixton uprising. And we just basically follow his story from there. And then uh, the last film is uh, education, which is uh, very much a character-driven story where we follow a young student who uh, has a learning uh, disability, and we basically follow the ways in which the London school system basically fails him. And that's the shortest of the five, as they almost all get shorter as they go along. Mangrove is about 130 minutes altogether. Uh, Lover's Rock is, I believe, 70 minutes. And then uh, Red, White, and Blue is 80. Alex Weedle's about like 70 as well. And then Education's a little over an hour. So, um, yeah, I mean, I I mean, for me, I, I don't know how I'd rank these films altogether because I think they're all almost of equal quality. But, I mean, the two for me that really stand out were, as we mentioned, Lover's Rock and Education, which I believe are two of them among the shortest, which is incidental to how I feel about the films themselves. But I do think it is fascinating that as we're having this discussion about, um, you know, is is this a collection of films? Is it a film itself? Is it a miniseries that um, the ones that I was afraid were going to be a little bit more episodic were the ones that ended up being among my favorites because they showcase the ways in which um, Steve McQueen can kind of play with form and allow himself to kind of get invested into the lives of characters. That's something I really appreciated about. Alex Weedle itself, it takes a non-conventional narrative route and it allows more time to avoid some of the tropes that we see in biopics, including in Mangrove, and, and just kind of live in the lives of these characters and really get to see them from a grounded and uh, nuanced perspective. 
Um, and that's something I really did appreciate about Red, White, and Blue as well. I think that one, if I had maybe a least favorite, it might be that one. Just because I, I do think, even though John Boyega is, I think, fantastic in the film, and I mean, he's been great in a lot of things, but it seems like of the uh, Star Wars alum, he's the one that hasn't really gotten his full due yet, which is a shame because I think he's been a terrific actor since um, all the way back in Attack the Block. At least that's the first time I saw him in something. Uh, it's a great showcase for him. I, I don't think thematically that one's quite as deep as the other ones, but I, I do think it, it hits its themes at least the hardest among the uh, first three. But um, yeah, I, I do think that there's a lot to value and appreciate in all these. I'm looking forward to having a little bit more in-depth conversation when you two get a chance to check out Alex Weedle and education and for you, John Mangrove. But um, yeah, I, I, I do think there's no like bad one, the bunch. Like I think these are all very good for similar yet very distinctive reasons, but uh, some of them I think are really going to catch some people's eyes more than another. And I'm very curious just based on the responses, which ones stand out to people more. Cause I think that that's kind of more telling of the viewer than uh, the films itself in a way. Yeah. I'll say real quick, you know, the, the two I saw, like I said, were lovers rock red, white, and blue. And I really like both of these. So these are the two that McQueen co-wrote with Korsha Newland and lovers rock is just such a, Man, that is just such a film that like captures every sense, you know, smell, taste, sound, visual. And it really like I, I don't see how anyone could watch all of these and not consider it like just clearly the standout. I mean, I don't know because I, I didn't see the other ones, so <laughs> I wouldn't know. But uh, especially compared to Red, White and Blue, which I, I really liked Red, White and Blue. I liked it. I think I more than you did, Will. Uh, mainly because of John Bay's performance. Oh, I and... mean, I liked it a good bit too. I just, I'm saying okay. like, I like all these a lot. So I have a hard I, time, okay, yeah, yeah. but um, I, I do think they're all very good. And I actually like that one quite a bit as well. I, I really liked it. I really liked the efficiency of it, the way they like anchor it with the father son dynamic and how raw it feels, how authentic it feels. And the hardship that Boyega goes through is very complicated and it's nuanced and it's hard to really like sort of wrap your finger around what he should be doing in any given situation. Um, so Abby, uh, I want to turn it to you at this point of the ones that you've seen, the first three. Yeah. Which ones stand out to you and uh, what are your like general thoughts on this like small acts experiment? Um, I actually uh, like red, white, and blue the most of the ones that I've seen. Um, I agree with you, John, that I like the uh, the focus on the uh, the father son dynamic. Uh, I feel like the character work is is really um, kind of fully fleshed out in a way that I didn't see quite as much in the other two films, and something that I kind of wanted more of. Um, and I think John Boyega's performance is like it's it's so good. I mean, it just reminds you of like why people like him as much as they do like what what makes him a star basically and why he should be in more things like he should be a movie star he's got that quality and i think that kind of comes through in like every single moment of this he's really charismatic uh he's extremely likable as a character you can see like the uh the way that he tries to relate uh as a as a police officer to uh to fellow cops to um the uh the other the pakistani officer who he tries to make friends with um and uh how he's sort of like disappointed when things don't go the way that he hopes that they will when he's not allowed to kind of succeed on his own merit the way that he knows that he can and should um and there's also uh there's also a, an action scene in this that we haven't gotten to talk about yet in uh red white and blue that is like i think my favorite oh, of that any tracking show that i've seen it's so good oh my goodness yeah, that's, it's that's, just that's like so this great, really yeah. great um yeah, like side-scrolling tracking shot uh, where uh, John Boyega's character, Leroy Logan, is uh, 
he's he's uh, pursuing a, a suspect through a warehouse and uh, the suspect that he's chasing is kind of like hiding in various locations at one point um, uh, injures Leroy and Leroy's trying to call for backup and the backup doesn't come. And like, there's, there's a moment where he just jumps like out of nowhere into the frame onto this mattress. And it's just, it's incredible. It just reminds you that like, do you guys, you, you remember when, when uh, Steve McQueen made Widows? Remember how good Widows was? Yeah. Remember how we would like and more how movies good like the Widows? tracking shots were in that <laughs> film and how people yes. didn't watch or yeah. talk about it? Yeah. You guys know yeah, that Steve exactly. McQueen can direct very well? Yeah. 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 yeah, he can. He's a very good director. And I think on, on the whole, I, I really like uh, that he has the room to experiment with this and make movies that are, are personal to him and uh, that reflect reflect uh communities and people and and experiences that are really important to him I, I can tell that all of these are are very personal and special um but also just yeah I think this this is the one that to me really reflects the things that I like about Steve McQueen the most as a director and uh the things that I would love to see more of from him I would love to see him have more opportunities to make movies like this yeah there's a on the note of tracking shots the one, the favorite that I have, it's not a tracking shot for action, but it's a tracking shot of like this uh, car scene where we're going up to the police academy and, you know. Yeah, it's a very good yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. It's a very good one as well, I said. Yeah, it's just like, it doesn't go the way you would expect. And it's it's a scene that's all about the information we don't get, but we see anyway. And like, you have to fill in the blanks. And that was just so effective for me. I thought that, that was like the perfect way to handle that whole scene, which was very heavy, very loaded with a lot of subtext and what had come before. So yeah, I mean, it's it's a really fine piece of work here. I, I really like this experiment in general, this idea of like, it kind of reminds me of like, because it's an anthology, it feels like it's kind of like if you took the Ballad of Buster Scruggs and you blew out all the chapters, right? And so that's why I think a lot of people like, me included are looking at this as a collection of films because i think you could you could make the argument that it's like one film with like chapters but it's just released differently i guess that's not how i look at it um i look at it as that these are just a bunch of films that steve mcqueen made that are related to each other just in terms of like the material they cover but all of that is just branding and marketing and distribution and so for me my definition of film is very different i guess i just look at these as things that you can watch on their own and totally get them like i don't think you need to watch any of these to understand red white and blue like they're just not you know i don't think that that's uh, applicable here um but yeah what, what do you two think of that you know i'm curious like how do how do you define this uh this format yeah, I think it's a series of films. Uh, I know McQueen has been on record as saying that he sees it as a series of films. Um, it seems like we haven't had difficulty categorizing stuff like the Decalogue as a series of films, and that's what this is. Um, I think the uh, the categorization issue comes into play when, I guess, you're talking about awards, which I get, but um, I, I, I feel I'm a little bit annoyed that that's the thing that's driving the conversation. It's it's a series of films that you can watch individually or think of as a collective whole project. And I, I feel like it's not that hard to parse out. I wish it wasn't as hard in the discourse to parse it out as as it's being made. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I'd agree with that. I think I'm, I see it as a collection of films as well. I mean, I could definitely see if someone wants to look at it as a miniseries that makes sense to me. I think calling small acts a film like one collective film is odd but um you know it's props to the uh 
uh, LA film critics for, you, you know, being to their yeah. own drum and, and doing their own thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was a choice. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I, I, I get like, you don't want to choose one, but I think they also pick like Lover's Rock for like best score or something, which is also weird because I don't think that has a score. It has a soundtrack uh, as far as I can recall, at least. But I think it has a score too, you know. It might. Yeah. I mean, I know um, Mika Le- Levy did um, the music for at least a few of these. And, uh, you know, she's, yeah. she's always great. Like, she's one of the best composers out there. So um, that's, you know, that's surprising at all. But her band um, is really good, too. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I was, you know, I, I feel bad. I was underselling uh, Red, White and Blue. I, you, you, YouTube did bring up a lot of things I did like about that as well. And I do think it brings up a lot of complicated, nuanced questions that are well worth pursuing. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there's no bad one in the bunch, like I said. Like, I, I think they're all very good. At, at doing what they want to do. And um, I, I think it's just a kind of a, a test of the viewer to see which ones they you like more than others. But um, they all stand out, I think, in their own individual ways. This originally came out on the BBC. And I'm literally looking at the poster for BBC's. Uh, it says, We Are the Small Axe, and that it is a collection of five films from Steve McQueen. <laughs> so uh, that, that really seals the deal of for me, as we've mentioned, uh, you can watch Small Axe right now on Amazon Prime Video if you're in the States. And uh, I'm not sure internationally how it works, but again, it's BBC. So yeah, if you're in the UK, uh, you should have a uh, an easy way to get access to that through whatever channels BBC has released it on. Uh, I definitely hope that it continues to get uh, a lot of attention as we get into awards season. I could definitely see uh, Lovers Rock and Red, White, and Blue hitting the conversation um, for a matter of things. And yeah, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know about Best Director, but some other things. I do know. I, I think it's not eligible for Oscars. Uh, I believe that they're um, campaigning it for Emmys as a like miniseries altogether. Not surprising. Yeah. yeah, but I just to clarify, like, I, I don't think it's actually technically up or eligible for Oscars, even though like I, I do know it's going to go on a lot of best of lists or at least individual segments well, are going to. But, do you mean yeah. eligible or do you mean like they're not submitting it for an Oscar? I think they're why. not submitting it. Yeah, that's, that's a better okay. way of clarifying it. But um, that's at least what I was told. Like, you know, I could change your mind, I guess. I don't exactly know uh, how this works. Like these are kind of things that are a little bit uh, above my head, I guess, because I don't I don't exactly follow the uh, the politics of um, award seasons that closely. But um, I do know that I think that they're trying to categorize this or push for its Emmy presence more than its Oscar presence at this point. Yeah. And actually, that's and now that I think about it, I'm, I'm curious to know, like, this is obviously a, a giant what if situation. But like, had COVID not happened, had theaters been open, I wonder if perhaps that approach might have changed, like if it might have been possible to give it more of a theatrical push. But yeah, um, yeah, I guess that's just the spot where we're at. I do think, like, I, I definitely think Mangrove and Lovers Rock would have at least been like the New York, LA film scene, like played in theaters that way, um, at least like for the Oscar qualifying category. But like you said, yeah, it's just hard to know if that uh, had an impact on it or not. But uh, right, Amazon, they made their choice. Yeah. And I forgot because uh, this sparked something you said, Abby, about Decalogue. Um, I remember, uh, I think it was Josh Larson. I first heard that comparison. Uh, your colleague, Josh Larson, uh, film spotting and think Christian and all that. Uh, so I, I think that's a great comparison, like really falls in line. Yeah, I think it's one of as well. Um, and then like the Three Colors trilogy is another example, I'd say as well. So there's a lot of good uh, ways to compare it. But it's also its own very distinct and unique thing. So it's kind of hard to... Uh, get into the semantics, I guess, too much of this thing. Well, 
let's get into the semantics of finishing this episode of Cinemaholics. <laughs> sure. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I don't have a ton of plug this week. I already sort of plugged things and off topics, but uh, Abby Olchesi, is there anything you got cooking this week that you want to share with the listeners? Um, you will see a review of Soul from me this week at uh, Crooked Marquee and also a forthcoming review of Promising Young Woman, both of which I know we'll be talking about in uh, next week's episode. But if you want a preview of my thoughts on those, uh, they will be there. Uh, I also will be contributing to uh, the Roger Ebert list of uh 2020 favorite performances. I'm not quite sure when that's coming out. I know it'll be before the end of the year, but sometime in the next couple of weeks. Um, and I will also have a top 10 list on uh, Crooked Marquee uh, again sometime, I think probably at the end of this week or early next. Sounds great. And yeah, I definitely got to put a, uh, I also have a review for Soul. I forgot I'm <laughs> coming out for the young folks and I'll be contributing to the young folks top films of the year as well. I just had to f- finalize my picks today and it was very sad, but I had to leave out, but it's going to be a terrific list. I can't wait for you all to see that. And, uh, Will Ashton, uh, what about you? What do you got going on? Uh, well, a little bit later this week, I, I'm currently in the midst of writing my um, Promising Young Woman review, so that should be hopefully coming out pretty soon. But uh, yeah, be on the lookout for that. That should be hopefully on its way. All right. Well, keep your eyes out for the Christmas star. Hopefully this will not be a Greenland situation, and we will see you all next week. Sorry, I had to finish with that. Uh, from the Internet, California, I am John Agroni. From the Internet, Pennsylvania, I'm Washington. From the Internet, Kansas City, I'm Abby Olchesi. See you next time. <laughs>